the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Let's pivot to a topic that I know is of great fascination to many folks here in the San Francisco Bay Area. This would include those that are renting with the hopes to buy, current owners that are looking to maybe sell. Maybe you're dealing with everything from a empty nest syndrome where you just have too much house and not enough people in it. Or maybe your family is expanding and that quaint two-bedroom, one-bath, 1940s-style home that really looked great when you and your wife got married is not working anymore for you as your family is expanding. Real estate certainly a hot topic, and uh, perhaps no other place on the planet hotter than the San Francisco Bay Area. Joining me now in studio is Stephen Thayard. Stephen is the host of the Real Estate Connection Radio, heard every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KFAX. He has a background in public accounting. He's been in the real estate industry coming up on 15-something years, currently serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the Santa Clara County Association of Realtors. And Stephen, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Pulling you in from a Saturday and get you in here during a weekday. Talk a little bit about a topic that I know you're very passionate about. And I guess for a lot of folks living in the Bay Area, this is always a hot topic, particularly with challenges in relationship to where do I find a home? How much am I going to pay for that home? Can I even afford to buy a home? Tell us what's going on in the real estate industry here in the Bay Area right now. Well, I'll tell you. It is on fire, but it's slowing down just a little bit, I got to say. Last year this time, we were seeing houses go on the market on a Monday and going into contract after the first weekend of open houses, probably on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And generally speaking, buyers were coming in and paying anywhere from fifteen to $100,000 over asking, depending on which part of the Bay Area the house was located in. Generally speaking, if you were close to the new spaceship or Apple campus, we were seeing 100, uh, 125 over asking. Uh, if you were in the Valley, Almaden Valley, and good school districts or in Cupertino, you were seeing the same thing happen. But generally, sellers were seeing maybe four, five, six offers being presented in front of them. And real estate agents were having to put what we call offer dates on the multiple listing service saying the house is going on the market on X date. We're having open houses on these dates, and then we're having an offer date deadline by this date, about seven days into the future, and then stopping all offers from coming in because it was so hot that they were seeing 15, 20 offers if they weren't putting us a hard offer date on the market. And sellers were just taking advantage of it, and buyers were buying houses like crazy, but we've slowed down since then. Is that a healthy thing? And I ask that question because certainly from a 
seller's perspective, having a hot market where there are bidding wars going on and, and you know, six figures over asking price, I mean, this, this is certainly a, a buyer's paradise. But then I have to wonder, when we talk about pricing people out of the market from a practical standpoint, as prices certainly in, in spots like San Francisco have gotten further and further out of reach, more jobs, greater demand, less inventory, I have to wonder if at the end of the day a little bit of cooling is healthy to kind of at least bring us back to, if not the, the, the old normal, maybe the new normal? Well, I absolutely do think so. Last year, buyers were uh, talking about this a lot, and they were even writing newspaper articles in some of the major newspapers about, you know, will the market cool and what do people want? Real estate agents were complaining that it was very difficult for them to get their buyers into contract. And they were saying, we would really like to see the market slow down a little bit, have a little bit more inventory and less um, for uh, velocity in the market moving things forward. Well, we got our wish in about June of last year um, when right after graduation happened, uh, the buyers left the market and we didn't quite understand what was going on. But as I look backward, backwards into last year now, I can see that the Fed was starting to raise interest rates and they were projecting that they were going to com- continue to raise interest rates throughout the remaining of 2018 and possibly into 2019. And with a market that's uh, heavily stock market driven, people started to pull back because they weren't sure if they were going to be able to cash out those stocks and just you know purchase a house for cash. And they weren't sure whether or not the housing market was going to be adversely affected by those rate hikes and prices were going to start to come down. And the last thing a buyer wants to do is get into a property at that very height or top of the market, and then a year later be underwater. So buyers became very cautious starting in June of last year, and that's continued up into spring of 2019. And that's, again, probably a very good thing because there's a level at which all that frothiness at the top just becomes so unmanageable. I mean, you you mentioned about, you know, it goes to the MLS listing on Monday, Offers start coming in by Tuesday. They barely even get to the open house this weekend because there's already six great offers in front of the homeowner who maybe has got a contingency here. They're looking to, to move somewhere else, so it's important that they unload the house as quickly as possible. And so as a result, it makes it very difficult for home buyers because there's no real chance to sort of shop the market, is there? I mean, you, you almost, if you can afford it, if, if you can qualify for the loan, you practically have to jump at the first house you can see, because if you don't, surely somebody else will, and there's no such thing as, let's circle back next weekend and take a look at that lovely little cottage again. That cottage has got a sale pending sign on it now. That's absolutely right, and that's exactly what was going on. But in the market now, it's different. So what I've been advising my sellers is that things have definitely slowed down. The Fed did raise rates for a while. However, they've pulled back from that and decided that they aren't going to raise rates anymore. The effect of this hasn't really taken place yet in the market. People are still cautious and unsure as to what's going to happen. However, inventory is still low in the Bay Area, which means that you have demand still at a pretty good pace and supply pretty low, which is keeping the uh, the market prices high. We're just not seeing, you know, 15, 10, or 20% over asking and selling within three or four days. Now we're seeing anywhere from 
just at asking price to maybe 3% over asking price, and it's taking anywhere from 11 to 14 days for a house to go into contract. We're also seeing the median price for homes drop in the Bay Area. Now, we're not seeing you know a bottom coming out of the bottom of the market where we're like a 15 or 20% reduction. We're talking... Uh, 7% in Santa Clara County, 1% in San Francisco County, and then uh, 3% in Alameda County, and about 10% in San Mateo County. So there's been some price pressure downwards, um, but it's more of an easing than it is um, of a bubble breaking. Yeah, and and certainly, I mean, I, I think most experts would agree that the events of 2008, 2009, where literally the bottom fell out, uh, all that went into creating that environment, much of that has now been addressed. The derivatives are are no longer a factor, although I understand there are some lenders that are getting back to a little bit of the what I'll call questionable lending practices, although I think Fannie and Freddie have kind of tightened down on a lot of that. So it's not like you can just simply go in with an income-stated only uh, loan and they'll walk you out with a check for, you know, the three-quarters of a million dollars. It takes a little bit more than that. But I, I would suspect the bigger picture is also playing into the fact that buyers are looking at everything from not just what they have to put down to get into the home, but what their monthly is going to look like combined with the the party that they're having at uh, city halls across the Bay Area with these um, home prices and what they translate into with property taxes, my goodness, a lot of people are, are you know, even, even the average nice little, you know, two-bedroom or three-bedroom, two-bath two ranch house uh, is going to cost the average homeowner five $6,000 a month to live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were just talking about affordability in one of uh, my last shows, and there's a lot that goes into the affordability factor. So especially in California, we're not only looking at the purchase price, but we're looking at the ability to save for a down payment in the Bay Area when there's a lot of high cost of living here. We have gas prices that are around $4 a gallon. Uh, We have sales tax averaging at about 9%. And at a combined income of $106,000 in the house in a household in the state of California, you're at a 9.3 income tax rate. On top of that, um, you've got your sales taxes um, and utility bills. So we all know that utility costs have been going up, and we've had a little event called a Paradise Fire, um, and PG&E is now going to be passing along uh, the cost of some of those lawsuits onto our on the consumer base. So. Given all of that, along with your property tax rate of 1.25% of your purchase price added onto principal and interest and insurance on your home, it takes a lot and he didn't to maintain even mention, a household. He didn't even mention any of the bond measures. <laughs> and, you know, mosquito <laughs> abatement, street lighting, school bonds. Uh, yeah, it, it, it really, it, when you start to count the real total cost of housing in the Bay Area, it, it, no wonder people get sticker shock if they come in from outside of the region. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's an issue. However, we still live in California, and we have one of the strongest economies in the world. Um, our state alone could be a country all by itself as far as economies is an economy. Sorry, an economy is and, concerned. And by the way, let me add, there are people that live in the other 49 states that oftentimes would like to suggest that. <laughs> that we just let it become a country of its own. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, they do think that. Um, but, you know, we live in our state. It's a beautiful state, and there's really good people in the state of California. The the uh, 
the leadership in the state doesn't necessarily represent the people here. And um, there's just a lot of really good, hardworking individuals who are going out every day, uh, putting it out on the line. They're just either in business for themselves or they're working really hard to support their families and they're native to the state or they've been here for a couple of generations and they're still doing the same thing. So I still think it's a great place to live. There's lots of opportunity with jobs. The unemployment rate is historically low. I was just saying in a recent show, um, California continues uh, to add jobs as well. So there's opportunity for jobs. Unemployment's low. Um, The overall lending rate is still around 4.1%. That's historically low throughout the nation. So the metrics are still here to buy a house and be part of the American dream. It just is a little bit harder to do in the state of California. But once you're in and you're riding that equity train, you love it. Yeah, and that really is key. We'll talk more about that after a timeout. If you've tuned into our conversation a bit late, real estate agent. Stephen Thayer is with us today in studio. He, of course, is the host of Real Estate Connection Radio, heard Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. right here on KFAX. In addition to his expertise as a real estate specialist, he is also a certified probate real estate specialist, and we might even touch on that if time allows. Let's take a quick time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Stephen Thayer as we talk about the current state of real estate. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today. Stephen Thayer has dropped by. He, of course, is the host of Real Estate Connection Radio, heard every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KFAX. It really is everything and all things related to real estate, buying, selling, getting in, getting out, moving up, moving down, all of it. Stephen, we've talked about I perhaps a lot of the negativity in the sense <laughs> of, um, you know, time to contract from from the first exposure on the MLS to inventory challenges to certainly uh, price challenges. Let's talk about the positive side. You alluded to this uh, as we were ending the last segment, and that is the notion that as challenging as owning a piece of the Golden State may be, once you get in, it continues to remain one of those deals where long term, you're really not going to get hurt when it comes to California real estate. Yes, that is absolutely true. So I purchased my first home, I believe, in 1992. And I remember we paid something like 375000 for your average three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,500-square-feet house in Blossom Valley. Um, when we went to sell it about five years later, and somebody, when the real estate agent bought me the, um, the contract of the purchaser who wanted to buy the house, and it said $650,000 on it, I looked at him and I said, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you're they would have paid didn't list this my, much for this house? You didn't list my, my house and my neighbor's house at the same time? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa, three hundred grand in five years? Unbelievable. So, yes, the equity market here is absolutely fantastic. When it comes to real estate investing, investing, there's two markets. You either have an equity market or you have a cash flow market. Um, California real estate is an equity market, meaning that the barrier to entry is high. It's difficult to get in. But once you are in the market, you make money on owning the house. Just holding tight to the property for a long period of time, 
earns you income. And then you have to get your equity out by selling. You try to time it so you're selling on the up instead of the down, but generally speaking, you're going to make money on real estate by holding it in the state of California. There are other markets outside of the state, and I talk to investors all the time that are looking to invest in real estate, that you live in the United States of America. We're not bound by state boundaries. You can go out of the state and invest where it's an easier entry into the market, but those are cash flow markets. So you're not going to get the kind of equity that we see in the state of California. However, you'll get the cash flow. So you may be able to buy a three-bedroom, two-bath house on a, on a standard size lot for $150,000, say, in the state of Tennessee, and buy it for cash out of the equity of your house here in California, and you'll cash flow, which will pay your mortgage for the house and positive savings or income on that property and also have a write-off for tax purposes. However, if you hold that property for years, you might only see it go up ten dollars or $15,000. However, you will have a, a steady stream of income. California, however, different. You may be just barely covering your expenses to rent your investment property here, but the equity, the equity is where the real money is at. So five, six, seven years later, when you go and sell that property, you may be looking at two hundred fifty, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Let me ask you this: the, the the bottom of I think it was March of two thousand nine, even though it's only ten years ago, seems like it was ten million years ago in terms of the recovery that we've seen made by the markets here in the Bay Area. That has not been universally true, though, across the state. There have been areas that were hit hard in 2009 and have generally remained in in sort of that depression era feeling to this day. I'm speaking specifically of places like um, Stockton, Modesto, Fresno, parts of that. Does that continue to be a, a word of caution to investors that look down there and say, gee, I can get a nice little home for, uh, you know, two and a quarter and, and, and maybe get into the investing world and become a landlord? Yeah, so that's this okay, it's a depends and a yes and no question, a yes and no answer, sorry. So if you're looking in a market outside of, uh, say, an hour drive of Silicon Valley where the jobs are, um, that's the same market that I discussed as being out of state. It's a cash flow market. So the barrier to entry is low. So if you're buying that property and looking for an, equ- an equity play, meaning you're looking to make money off of holding the property, that's the wrong approach. You should approach it as, I'm going to purchase the home in an area where there's really good hourly wage work or good labor-paying jobs. Or a decent commute into the Bay Area, which I guess is what now, two hours these days? Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I'm going to collect rent. Uh, And the rent cash flow will be above what my expenses are for holding the property. And so that's a cash flow play. Um, If you're looking at it to get equity, then that's the wrong reason for you to be purchasing the home. Now, those areas are still going up because as... The, the market in the Bay Area goes up, it affects all the extended markets. But when the market in the Bay Area starts to come down, those markets go down a lot faster than we do. So you have to just be prepared to ride those out and know that the reason you own the home or the investment is for the cash flow. So really, it comes down to a sense of geography. The closer you are to the epicenter of the jobs, which is, of course, the immediate Bay Area, and yes. I guess the, more intimately, the six or seven uh, counties that, that, that ring the, the peninsula in the Bay Area, that really is an equity opportunity based largely on, on yes, we get high rents here, but you're also going to pay a, a top dollar for that property. So close in, it's equity-based, 
the further out you go, it becomes more cash flow based. Absolutely, and that's the play. And the reason that uh, it's been more expensive in the Bay Area, not only for uh, purchasing a home, but was in the when the downturn happened back in two thousand and nine. Housing values dropped, but the rental market stayed flat. So if you were paying, say, $1,500 a month for a rental of a two-bedroom apartment in 2009, that did not go down. It stayed at $1,500. It just stayed. And then when the value of the home started coming back up, the value of rent started rising too. So the rental market got no relief in the downturn. And so now you have extraordinarily high uh, payments in rent. And so people are having to move further away from the the action, so to speak, for jobs in order to get lower cost of uh, housing for rents. They're almost at parity, aren't they, in, in terms of the cost to own versus the cost to rent? I mean, historically, they used to say, well, if you can save up enough money to get in, it's going to be cheaper in the long run to own than it is to rent. But but there's been a real squeeze, uh, certainly to the benefit of, of uh, landlords, but to the disadvantage of renters out there who find out that, gee, I'm, I'm not really going to save at either level here. If I want to live in the Bay Area and not commute to, you know, coming in from uh, Tracy or Livermore or further out, uh, it just is what it is. It is. It is. And the advice that I've been giving lately is if you purchased a a property in 2009 at the bottom of the market and you have young children that are looking to get into the real estate um, homeowner's dream here in the Bay Area, go ahead and take some of that equity out of your house because you've done really well for yourself and help your children get a down payment. The, The cost to borrow money is still really low. What what the millennials and Generation Z lack is the cash flow in order to have the down payment in order to get into the property. So if you can help them out and maybe do a personal loan by pulling equity out and saying, hey, pay this back when you refi the house in, say, five or six years when they have the equity play, then you can help your children out or help people out, family members out in order to get the American dream of owning a home in the Bay Area. Let's dive a little bit deeper, Stephen, because that certainly is a big temptation for parents who say, gee, when we got our first home, this was easy, and we only had to put 10% down, and we did then a, a uh, an 80-10 loan. All this worked out for us. We didn't have to come up with these ridiculous numbers. Now the kids today have to come up with what are you know what used to be the whole value of the house. That's not just right. a down payment. Right. Uh, restrictions from a lender's perspective regarding things like gifting. Uh, any words of caution there? I know that you can certainly, without any tax exposure, gift. I think the the, the limit now is either twelve or fourteen thousand dollars a year. So certainly, from an anticipatory standpoint, you can begin sharing some of that wealth, passing it on to your kids where they can develop a bit of a nest egg. But any restrictions or things that the the lenders kind of shy away from when it comes to the folks helping out? So I like to tell people that lenders are the third arm of the Federal Bureau investigation. (laughs) (laughs) They they absolutely have to trace every dollar that comes in uh, when you're buying a home, uh, title companies as well. And before they'll approve the loan, they want to make sure that they can see that all the cash coming in for the down payment has come from legal sources. So generally speaking, a parent or a family member can gift any dollar amount they want 
to a loved one in order for them to use as a down payment, as long as they document the fact that it is a gift and we can trace the dollar amount back to their bank account. So there are specific rules, but generally speaking, it's not a risk issue in regards to that. It's a good thing that you did bring up the tax element. Um, I'm not a tax professional, so here's my caveat. Always go to your tax professional and have it uh, confirmed. But if you're planning and you're really planning with your children and you do want to help them out, start gifting that ten to $14,000 amount annually for three or four years so they can build up the $40,000 down payment. Just make sure that they don't spend it <laughs> as best you can. And then you won't have to worry about um, it being a tax issue if it comes up out of nowhere and you think it's a good idea. Yeah, because they all share information. Right. And and as you point uh, to the fact that they're going to look, they're going to want to verify what the source of that money was about. And I guess at the end of the day, then, from the lender's perspective, they're looking to qualify you based on your ability to repay the loan not necessarily on whether or not you've saved every dollar since you got your job at McDonald's at the age of 16 or grandma and grandpa came in and gifted you a hundred grand when they passed away. They don't really care as much about that as they're concerned about your ability to make that monthly payment. Yes. And I have this conversation all the time with first-time home buyers because generally speaking, a first-time home buyer starts their home search in the evening when they're looking at their rent payment and they're like, it's $3,500 for this two bedroom apartment. There's, it's got, there's got to be a better way. And they get on the internet and they start looking at housing and then they run into a realtor and they go, how much of a down payment do I need? And what are my payments going to be? <laughs> my answer is always, it depends because your payment is based on how much of a loan you have. So the more money you put down on the property, the less of a loan you're going to have, which means your, your payments are going to be smaller. So that goes back to your point. If you receive a gift from your grandmother or you inherit a hundred or $200,000, the bank doesn't care. As long as it was a legal way of obtaining the cash, you put it down and then you have the ability based on the income that you earn to pay the payments on the loan you're getting, you're good to go. Let's take a time out. I want to come back with some closing thoughts. If you've joined the conversation a bit late, we're speaking today with Stephen Thayard. Stephen, of course, is a real estate expert. He is the host of Real Estate Connection Radio, heard every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KFAX. We'll take a brief time out, come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Let me invite you, if you want to hear more, you can check out Stephen's program, get more great insights on home buying, home selling, and all the do's and don'ts every Saturday morning on Real Estate Connection Radio. That's Saturday mornings, 8 a.m., right here on KFAX. Steve, we'll spend just a couple of more moments together. I, I know certainly to the interest of, of listeners, whether they are directly wanting to become a first-time home buyer or many folks eavesdropping on our conversation that have kids that are at that stage. They've graduated from college. They've gotten married. Now they're looking to kind of get established. Uh, just walk us through, if you would, some recommendations. Certainly, first-time home buyer, sort of the watchword there is it's going to be a starter place. So don't think 
six bedrooms, three bathrooms on a quarter of an acre in Blackhawk as where you're going. That might be the dream house. That might be where you wind up. But for most people, practically speaking, that isn't where they start. Share a few insights, if you would, in terms of how do you get the process started? How do I know how much I even qualify for? What things do I need to keep in mind in terms of uh, creditworthiness and um, loan-to-debt ratio and things of this sort? Some of the, the money fundamentals that have to be looked at before you start driving up and down the street looking for picket fences. Well, uh, you're, you're jumping right into my buyer presentation here. So uh, this should be pretty straightforward, pretty easy for me to, to lay out. So first of all, from a 30,000-foot perspective, when I'm talking to first-time home buyers, I say it's a three-step process in your journey of home ownership in the Golden State of California. Your first initial starter getting into the market acquisition and then moving into maybe your middle home in a regular neighborhood and then your dream house if you choose to go that direction. So initially, you want to get into a property that you can afford. And it depends on what your income level is, how much money you have saved, and where you're at in that financial realm. So that could either mean a condo, one bedroom, two bedroom, or it could be a townhouse, maybe three bedroom, two bath with a two car garage. It just depends on where you're at. The first place you always start is the money man. So I kind of like to say it like this. If we lived in a world where everything was credit, and I mean just everything, there was no cash, and you were going to go to Macy's or a department store to buy something, you wouldn't walk in the store unless you were approved for their credit card. That's the same thing with buying a house. So the first place I send first-time home buyers is to a reputable lender. And not just a lender that you recognize with a name or a big bank. We're talking about lenders who specialize in home purchasing because it's a talent and a skill set. When you get into um, banks that do multiple disciplines, they may not be very good at buying homes or helping people buy homes. And so it's very important that you get that person because once you're locked in with the new rules that we have in the United States of America for lending, it's very difficult to jump to a new lender just because of the way they've shifted things after the after the market crash in 2008, 2009. So you want to get somebody who specializes in just getting homes. If the rate's a little bit higher, that's okay. You can always refinance later. But we want somebody who can get the job done. Let them look at your credit, let them look at your income, and then let them tell you what you qualify for as far as how much you can borrow. But that's not where you stop because you need to know what that payment is going to be. Just because you qualify to borrow a million dollars doesn't mean you should. You need to know what you feel comfortable with as far as your monthly expenses overall for living. So if that million dollar qualification means that you're going to have a $10,000 a month mortgage payment and you don't feel comfortable with that, you're going to dial it down to a number that you feel comfortable borrowing. That also includes your interest on the loan, your property taxes on the property that you're purchasing, and the insurance. You go there first and you work out all of those details and back into a comfortable payment. And then what you get at the end of that process is a conditional loan approval letter. That letter is the key for you to write an offer on the house that you ultimately want to buy. So you really want to have that letter in hand in advance. That that shows to the home seller you're serious. This is a serious offer. The worst thing to happen is for 
an offer to be written, an offer to be accepted, going to contract, and then, uh-oh, we've just found out you can't qualify for this house. You've wasted everybody's time, and you probably also just donated a nice deposit check to somebody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. I got to tell you, um, I, most real estate professionals won't let someone in their car to go show property unless they have the conditional loan approval from the buyer. It's just a professional check that we use uh, for working with buyers in order to make sure that they're really ready. Because real estate's really emotional. The last thing you want to do is find the home of your dreams and then go back and figure out that you're either not qualified or you're overqualified because it can go in both directions. You could find out that you can't afford it or you could afford more and then you're like, well, I don't want this small house. I want a bigger one and you have to start the process all over. So it makes your search process more fruitful because you're laser focused in on the price range that you can afford and you have this letter in hand that proves to the seller and to the realtor that you can move forward with the purchase once you find the house. Now, as an experienced real estate agent, a homeowner, and a family man, um, give us, again, that 30,000-foot-high view on, on a bigger-picture question, and that's this. Oftentimes, uh, the be-all to end-all is to get that breakthrough and get in, get your foot in the door into, into real estate ownership, whether it's a single-family dwelling or a condo, whatever it might be. Do young couples make the mistake of focusing so heavily on obtaining that house that they forget about some of the longer-term things that they need to be able to have the necessary cash flow for. I'm thinking specifically of someday kids are going to come along, and then those kids are going to want to go to school, then someday they're going to want to go to college. And as you work through all that process, you, know, you can borrow money to buy a house. You can borrow money uh, certainly to send a kid to college. You can't borrow money to retire. Is it important to think about big picture that you don't get so cash-strapped in making that mortgage payment every month that you are failing to set money aside for some of these other issues in life? There's some wisdom involved in all of this uh, for sure. Um, Real estate professionals will advise, but in my 15 years, what I've learned is I cannot impart my viewpoints onto my clients. Uh, You would hope that people would think in this direction, but not everyone does. Uh, So my advice would be, Start with a starter home that is below budget, something that you are comfortable with getting into, where the payments are low enough, where you still have discretionary income to still have fun. You do not want to be a house poor, meaning all of your discretionary dollars are going to paying the mortgage and the expensive expenses to maintain a home. You want to have a little bit left over just for peace of mind because there's always unexpected bill who comes knocking on your door from time to time. A car breaks down, somebody gets sick, um, you, you might want to go on vacation. Just things happen in life. So it's always good to have a little bit of a cushion where you can make decisions and have some freedom in the United States of America to have choices to do things that you want to do and to set money aside. The equity in the Golden State will grow for you, and then in five years, you can make the next move. That's about the average amount of time people stay in their first home, if it's a starter home. It's about five years. And in about five years in California, you generally have enough equity to move to that next level. And then you take the money out of your house, your first home, and roll that into a bigger, better next home, and you still have that cushion. Now, I will say you do have to stretch just a little, little bit, and this is why. 
when you are working a professional job, you're not stagnant in your salary. You may have started at seventy-five, eighty thousand, but as you're five years into the home, you're also five years into your career, and your income's going to go up. So you're going to get comfortable over time because you're earning more money as well. Some good insights on real estate and becoming a first-time home buyer. Stephen Thayer at our guest today. More information available, you can go to his website at realestateconnectionradio.com. That's realestateconnectionradio.com. And we invite you to check out the program every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KFAX. Stephen, if folks want to reach out to you directly, what's the best phone number they can reach you? They can reach me directly at 408 472 0817. Again, that's 408-472-0817. And as you've heard from our dialogue today, Stephen is very knowledgeable in, in a multiplicity of arenas in the real estate world, from buying to selling, dealing with probate. And so if you have any questions, you're looking to get some solid advice, maybe some tips on where to start, a little bit deeper than what we were able to discuss on the program today, feel free to give them a call. 408 472 That's 408 408- 472-0817 or online anytime at realestateconnectionradio.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There's a bit of graffiti that I saw on a wall one day that made such an interesting statement. You, you've heard this phrase before, God is dead. Nietzsche, in fact, had made that comment low many years ago. So here is the big piece of graffiti on the wall that says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And somebody had come along and tagged it in different color spray paint and drew a big circle with a line through it. And then down below wrote the following phrase, Nietzsche is dead. God. <laughs> it makes you makes you kind of look at the whole debate over the existence of a higher power, a greater being, uh, God himself, and the sense that struggle in the modern age of, of increased knowledge that people have. While I think there is unprecedented levels of interest and hunger in spiritual matters, um, along with that, though, we see the fastest growing segment of belief is in fact non-belief or atheism. Well, why is that? And how much of this has to do with understanding of God and the level of the way in which Christians live out their lives and in some ways perhaps embarrassingly so turn people off to the gospel? How can we put forward evidence for God in an age of uncertainty? Well, we've invited uh, Dr. Rice Brooks to join us on the program. He is um, pastor of Bethel World Outreach Church. She's the author of a number of best-selling books. His latest, simply entitled, God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. And Pastor Brooks, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Craig. This is, uh, this is an old debate, but it's a debate that seems to be ever-increasing these days, as certainly we see a tremendous interest in 
the occult, in the supernatural, um, in um, alternative so-called religions like Wicca and paganism and so on and so forth. I don't, don't think there's any argument that uh, mankind still doesn't quest for some kind of a uh, satisfaction to a spiritual thirst, but the manner in which we go about doing it, and in particular the direction in which we head in terms of whether or not we ultimately arrive at belief in God or not, that seems to be changing. And as you point out in the book, uh, remarkably and disappointingly so, the fastest segment of those in the arena of belief are those who believe in nothing. Why is that? Craig, uh, that was actually a Newsweek article uh, last Easter that said that they, they noted that, that the fastest growing of, quote, uh, area segment of, quote, belief is, uh, is uh, atheism or skepticism. I think, uh, you know, after, probably after 9-11, there was a rash, uh, shortly after there was a rash of books by men like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and, and the late Christopher Hitchens, and they they took their beef with religion public in a, in a greater way um, to to basically to ridicule faith, to say there's no evidence for God, and so a lot of those books and materials have come out, and there's just this rash of that kind of it's almost like a political campaign, and I think that uh, the arguments that they put forth are flawed, and if but if there's no response to those arguments, uh, then then those arguments, though deeply flawed, will prevail. So I think that what happens, and that's the reason I wrote the book, God's Not Dead, one of the reasons is because I think there are clear, uh, clear, straightforward arguments or evidences for God, but you have to know what they are. And, of course, you have to live it out. I wonder, just based on what we see as modern-day Christianity in a world of, uh, you know, mega churches and, and the approach towards, uh, uh, you know, new ageism, so on and so forth, creeping into what had been um, normative evangelical Christianity, that there are a growing number of believers out there who can't defend their faith because the faith they have is indefensible, meaning that it is weak, it is listless, it's ineffective. Craig, you're right, and I mean, I mean, really, the I mean, Jesus himself came along, and the greatest, seems like some of the greatest criticisms was against religion itself, or the practice that uh, thereof, and the, and the mis- misunderstanding that lives of people gave in terms of what how they represented God. But, you know, again, I have five children. If my children do bad things, that doesn't mean I don't exist. And so I think it's really beside the point, the question of, does God exist? Is there evidence for him? Uh, I believe there's clear clear-cut evidence, not only scientifically, philosophically, and then ultimately, historically, in the resurrection of Christ. And though lives of certain people are, who profess to be believers uh, maybe discredits that or points away from that, I think that we have to say those are, philosophically, those are called ad hominem arguments, meaning it's argument against the man. But um, really, when you, when you start looking at that and when you start putting forth the evidence for God, uh, in fact, the Newsboys, a Christian group uh, that many of them have been a part of our church out here, they have a song uh, that they uh, put forth called "God's Not Dead." And in the last 18 months, it was a, you know, a very fast number one hit. And and, and there was it's a it's almost like an anthem for faith, as opposed to maybe John Lennon's "Imagine There's No Heaven," which if there's an anthem for unbelief, that might be the the, the song. But um, then the newsboys, many of them came and said, you know, would you write this book to, to give the evidence? Because really, uh, three out of four young people will leave their church youth groups, and when they get to college, three out of four will, will pretty much leave their faith behind. And Is so, part of the so challenge here, even as we try to go about giving evidence for 
God that the the protagonist ends up having to deal with maybe an even bigger question that's being presented, and not just that God exists or doesn't exist, but that why his existence even matters. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I was actually at a. I work a lot, Craig, on the university campuses. Our our ministry, we're on maybe seven hundred campuses around the world, and. I was out on a, a campus, a University of Buenos Aires, and I, I had a translator with me, and I, I had four atheists there, and they basically posed that to me. They said, well, why does this even matter? Why does the existence of God even matter? Why do we even need to discuss it? And one of them had a guitar, and so through the translator, I, I said, do you write music? And he thought I was changing the subject and said, you know, he, like, okay, let's quit talking about God. Let's talk about me. And he said, yes, I, I write music. And I, I said, let me ask you, I said, I said, have you ever written a song? He said, yes, I've written a song. And I said, why did you write it? And he said, I wanted to bless. I wanted to I didn't say bless. He said, I wanted to help people. I wanted to express my feelings. And I said, well, what if you wrote a song? and somebody either denied you wrote it or took credit for what you wrote, would that bother you? And he just instantly said, absolutely, you know, in his own, however he said that. And I said, well, what if you created a planet? <laughs> in other words, God is the creator. Now, we're, so, uh, we're so in tune to our intellectual property rights and to that, but here God is the creator of everything. He has the patent on air. He has the patent on DNA. Because he is the creator, then all of life points to his ownership and that's what in the, in the Scripture talks about when we stop honoring Him as God or giving thanks and our hearts become darkened. So because God is real, He is the ultimate basis of reality. And so to deny that or to ignore that is much like a fish that just says, I just don't want to acknowledge water. I don't want to acknowledge what surrounds me. Uh, and, it's, and it says, in Him we live and move and have our being. So everything, it's everything to do with a healthy life, with a normal life, to understand the, the very ground of our being, which is God himself. And the existence of your doubt does not pretend to the notion that, therefore, what you doubt exists certainly does not. We're going to go a little bit deeper on this uh, equation. We're visiting today with uh, Dr. Rice Brooks. The book is called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. We'll take a brief time out. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com